Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. Each week I'm joined by our experts, journalists, policymakers, academics and former diplomats to discuss the critical events shaping our world today. On this edition, we'll be discussing the US midterm elections, what's at stake now that we know some results but not all, and getting a sense of how the elections are unfolding on the ground. Meanwhile, in Egypt, at COP27, world leaders, including Rishi Sunak, gathered to discuss the latest steps towards achieving net zero. They're trying to limit warming to 1.5 degrees and, above all, to answer the crucial question regarding loss and damage. That's the losses and damages suffered by some of the poorest countries in the world from climate change. This week, our experts are on the ground, both in the United States and in Sharm el-Sheikh, and we're going to be hearing from them throughout the show and getting their sense of what's at stake. Joining me this week are Professor Peter Trubowitz, a Professor of International Relations and Director of the Phelan US Centre at the London School of Economics. He's also an Associate Fellow here at Chatham House. Hello, Peter. Hello. Good to be with you. Great to have you here. And joining us as well is Anthony Froggart, the Deputy Director and Senior Research Fellow of our Environment and Society Programme. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks very much. Great to have you as well. And finally, joining us down the line from COP27, and it's going to sound just like that, is a returning voice. You heard her previously talk about John Kerry, and it's Anna Arberg, Research Associate, Environment and Society Programme as well. Hello, Anna. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for joining us from a, a very busy Sharm el-Sheikh. Well, we're starting not in Sharm, but first to Georgia, where Leslie Venjamuri, the director of our US and America's program, is on the ground looking at firsthand how both the Democrats and Republicans have been campaigning for Georgia's crucial Senate seats and governorship. Leslie, just take us into what the stakes are in these midterm elections for Joe Biden and the Democrats. Well, as we know, um, in the midterm elections, usually the president's party suffers a very significant loss. We've already seen that that's not happening. But for, for Joe Biden, I think there was a sense amongst many that this was really going to be a judgment of his presidency, how well he was doing. It's, it's certainly partly that. But I think the real question was, you know, whether people would turn out to vote, who would turn out to vote, how much enthusiasm. And I think people were really looking to see in this election how much of a hold Donald Trump has had and continues to have on the Republican Party. That's really one of the biggest questions and what we've seen so far. Well, what we've seen undoubtedly is that Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party simply isn't what many people thought it was. Except Donald Trump, who has sounded very pleased as some of the results have come in. What do you think we might expect from from what he might do? I think this is a a former president who's going to struggle in the face of results that have been very bad for him. His biggest challenger in the Republican Party, uh, who he'd been at odds with just in the last few days, holding separate rallies, Ron DeSantis in Florida has done extremely well. Um, Many of the candidates that Donald Trump has backed have not done well. This is seen to be a, a, a clear setback for the former president, and I think it really raises a big question mark over the future of the Republican Party. Lots of people coming out and criticizing the former president for not having delivered the overwhelming victory that one would have expected at a midterm election in this kind of context for the Republicans. So a really very significant moment, I think. The question that everybody's wanted to know is for how long and how strongly does Donald Trump maintain a grip on the Republican Party. And I think this election has already shown us that that grip is slipping. It's slipping very fast. 
And it's going to open up a whole series of questions, not only about the role of Ron DeSantis, about, but now you know, the, the moment for other challengers, for other individuals to really rise and, and, and call out Donald Trump is, has arrived. It's very significant for the Republican Party. What about for the Democrats? What can we say about the room for maneuver that Joe Biden is going to have? And people were a week ago uh, very, very pessimistic, almost writing him off as, as the polls began to tilt Republican. Things look better now. Yeah, and I mean, this this is a problem for the polls. This is a problem for a lot of the coverage. Um, you know, a, a universe where people were calling Republican landslide in kind of an unsettling way, which raises you know a whole other set of questions. But I think um, for for President Biden, it was never going to be uh, an easy second half of this first term. It's going to be easier. The Republicans simply aren't getting as much of a hold on the House as as people imagine they might. But, you know, that his legislative agenda isn't going to have um, any new legs in the second half. I think that was, um, you know, as we expected. But, you know, that, you know, in the immediate this, you know, this election, as we know, is is still undecided. We don't know where the Senate's going to go. And it could well here in Georgia come down to a runoff between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. And it will will know in the next few hours. But this is this is potentially a very significant development, which means that the future of the Senate could could come down to a runoff that takes place on December 6, which will be very tough fought. And the key thing here is that for Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate to do well, the Republicans are going to have to turn out across the state of Georgia in spades. And if we've got Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis at war with each other, that's going to be harder than than, than might be anticipated. So let's turn to the big picture question, just following from what you've said about Georgia. And it's the question people ask from outside the United States, which is, you know, is this a country so divided it's on course not really to work as a country at all? But I think you, you're an American. You're, you're, you're standing in the United States at the moment. And I'm thinking the repost I often get from people in that position saying, no, look, some of this is, is, is the way the system is supposed to work. This is the very vigorous American democracy. What are we looking at? Yeah, I think we, we do have a very polarized country, but I think that the much bigger threat to democracy in America has been the radicalization of the Republican Party, the embrace of disinformation, of uh, denying the results of election. And again, this is a good news story. We've seen multiple governors defend their seats in the face of um, opposition candidates who are denying the result of the 2020 election. So I think, you know, the, the, the future story, the good news story is that we've seen an election that so far has been uh, free, that's been fair, and has put people in position uh, who are also, you know, not on the side of, you know, violence and elections. So it's a divided country for sure. But the thing that's made it dangerous is, is less the polarization and more uh, leaders who are willing to build on that polarization um, and whip up a very nasty politics. If we can move away from that, I think you see a country that's you know diverse, increasingly diverse, polarized, but but certainly workable. Well, that was Leslie Vinjamuri speaking to us from Georgia, the United States, and we are now going back to Chatham House and for a, just a wider discussion on those U.S. midterm elections. Peter, the big question that people ask from outside is, you know, this very divided country, as Leslie was describing. Should we be pessimistic about the United States? Bronwyn, I think the results send a hopeful, if somewhat mixed, message. 
On the one hand, the relatively high turnout for a midterm election, this looks like it's going to be uh, at the same rate as, let's say, 2018, which was very high by historical standards, uh, indicates that people are exercising their right to vote. That's a good thing. It's a healthy sign, it seems to me. On the other hand, we saw a huge number of election deniers running in this election. That is, those Republicans running for office claiming that the 2020 election was rigged and that Donald Trump really won. And some have won, but in a number of high-profile elections, such as the governor's race in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, and it looks likely in Arizona, the election deniers have either lost or they're running behind. The same is true in races for secretary of state and at the state level. Whether enough of them convince other Republican political hopefuls that this is a loser as a political issue, I would say right now that's a bit unclear. I think the more that Donald Trump is hung out to dry for the Republicans' poor showing, the more likely that is. And I think this is just a very important issue in terms of the health of American democracy and the likelihood that in the presidential contest in 2024 that we don't see a repeat of what we saw in 2020. So it's hanging there from the way you describe it. This is, of course, the point that people looking at the US from outside really worry about that the country might be shredding its own institutions of democracy and, by the by, not being a very good advertisement for democracy around the world. Yeah, well, I think it's mixed. This is a British understatement. I'm yes, using. Yeah. Like I just said, I think it's hopeful, especially in those very high profile races where Donald Trump attached his name. There are a lot of candidates that lost and they fully subscribe to the election denial position And they lost. And I think kind of one of the takeaways from this is that there are a lot of voters who care about what happened on January 6th. And it figured into their thinking. I'm not saying other stuff didn't matter. Obviously, inflation did and abortion did and crime and immigration. But there's a reason that Joe Biden and Barack Obama hammered that theme, especially in the closing weeks of the campaign, that democracy was on the line because it resonates with people. And not only Democrats, I would say with a lot of independent voters. So for me, if you're looking for, you know, is a glass half empty or half full, this is a kind of half full sign that people are mindful of what happened. And they paid attention to the January 6th commission, to the hearings, and that they see Donald Trump as a divisive figure. So, I mean, I think all that is in in play. But I also think that the fact that there were so many Republicans that committed to election denial as a position, that's a worrying thing. Anthony, let me bring you in here. What do these midterm elections mean for U.S. commitments on, on climate and, you know, we may see Biden a bit more circumscribed in what he can do, whether he can get, you know, spending promises through and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a possibility. I mean, I think the key thing is what we've seen over the last couple of years is progress being made on the national level. So we have seen significant legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, that has been adopted. That does open up hundreds of billions for the acceleration of decarbonisation. So... It will be difficult for that as a block to be rolled back on. It may be going forward that certain elements of it will be blocked. But I think on the national level, it's a better place than it might have been. 
I think we need to look at two other areas, though. One is what happens on the state level and then on the local level. So these elections are obviously across a broad spectrum of different legislators. So, for example, on the governor level, who is being put in place, they themselves will then appoint the regulators. And how much difference does this make to the US's overall environmental policy and what it does on climate change? It's really fascinating how many of these decisions are taken at the state level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where are the emissions? The emissions are not in the White House. They are all over the country. And so what is put in place? What investments? What are the planning rules? How are different funds allocated? Uh, absolutely crucial. And as you change from a Democrat to a Republican, then they may change that balance. So it will absolutely affect how you're actually implementing the decarbonisation plans. The one final point is worth thinking about, and maybe that builds on a bit what Peter was saying, is looking forward to two years, a Donald Trump future presidency would be disastrous from a climate change perspective. We know that as soon as he came to power first time round, he withdrew from the Paris Agreement. So I think it will be one of the important elements coming out of this is does this make it less or more likely that you see Donald Trump running again to being the Republican candidate? Peter, what do you make of this and specifically what the US might now do on on energy and the environment? Just building on the the last point there, I think actually I expect Biden to invest more time in energy and foreign policy, largely because I think there's a limit to what he's going to be able to do on the domestic side. This is assuming that the Republicans take the House. If for some reason the Democrats maintain control of the House and the Senate, I think this is unlikely, but that's, you know, then it's a different story. But if you can't make a lot of progress on domestic issues, he's going to look more and more to foreign policy. So then you have to think about which issues could he push credibly. And I think actually climate is one of them. So I say that especially because he did pass significant climate legislation. And I think as a result, he changed the kind of narrative and the dynamic about the United States and put the U.S. in a better position. I don't say necessarily to like lead the world on it, but certainly in a much stronger position than it was just a few years ago. So I wouldn't be at all surprised to see him push harder on that. It's worth pointing out climate as an issue is something that Americans really across the board are concerned about. I mean, as a polling issue, it's kind of like a winner, you know, to push in this direction. Where the rubber hits the road is when it comes to spending money for, you know, kind of important legislation, important programs to change things. And then then people start to think about what are the trade-offs in terms of other things that they might want or tax cuts and so forth. But in principle, as a kind of ceteris paribus, everything else held constant, there are a lot of Americans, a majority of Americans in polls, that favor aggressive action on this front. Anna, let me bring you in at this point from the hubbub at Sharm el-Sheikh. Peter's describing what could be you know, said to be an optimistic position about uh, the Biden administration and climate change. How is the U.S. position at Sharm going down? Well, the U.S. is a really important player in these talks, and uh, the midterm elections is definitely an important factor to watch here. Uh, as has been mentioned by the other panelists, it was really important that Congress managed to pass the Inflation Reduction Act ahead of the midterm elections and ahead of Uh, the Sharm el-Sheikh summit, where the focus on implementation is very strong. But Biden is still dependent on uh, Congress approval uh, to deliver climate finance to other developing countries. Uh, And if we see um, 
Congress being overtaken by the, the Republicans, that would be almost uh, impossible, and this will affect the U.S. stance in the climate negotiations on these issues around climate finance. Uh, so these midterms are really important, and the people are keeping an eye on it. Well, thank you for that. And let's use this as a reason to pivot and talk a bit more about COP27 and exactly what is going on there, because this has been a big week, a big few days there for the world leaders who are meeting there and trying to reach some kind of consensus. So I'm going to bring Anna Anna back in, in briefly. I think she's really battling against quite a lot of people and noise there, but we're very glad to have your thoughts on this. Just give us a sense on what has been happening in these rather technical, crucial first days, including this question of loss and damage. That's the claim, particularly by poorer countries, but those hit by the effects of climate change for some kind of uh, compensation, however it's phrased, from richer ones. How, how is it going? Yeah, I'm really sorry about the, the noise. I was trying to find a good spot where both the Wi-Fi connection was good and uh, where there weren't a lot of people. But it's, uh, Probably it's the two things go together, have a lot of noise and good Wi-Fi. <laughs> anyway, let's, let, yeah. let's persist because I would love to have your, your, your thoughts on this point. No, but of course, we're just a few days into this um, summit. We're recording this on the Wednesday. Uh, but there have been a few interesting developments. Uh, we've had the high-level segment, uh, which is called the Climate Implementation Summit here at COP27, where presidents and prime ministers have taken to the COP stage to talk about what they're doing uh, to ramp up ambition uh, and to implement the commitments that have already been made. Uh, and there are a few things I take away, I guess. Uh, One is that very few countries have used this critical stage to ramp up their 2030 national emission reduction targets. Uh, And this is really worrying uh, because we are dramatically off track when it comes to reaching the 1.5 degree target in the Paris Agreement. Uh, The UN published a report just a few days ago showing that if the 2030 commitments that have been made are implemented, uh, and that if is quite important, we're heading for a rise of 2.5 degrees in the global average temperature, which will be absolutely disastrous for many communities. Uh, And there's another aspect to this as well. Last year at COP26, governments promised to revisit their 2030 targets this year, but only a handful of uh, governments have done this, uh, which also kind of calls into question if governments are delivering on promises that have been made. So I think that's one uh, thing I take away from these first two days. Anna, thanks very much indeed. I'm going to say thank you uh, at that point uh, and release you from this and from the the crowded uh, corner that you've managed to find on this. But thank you very much indeed for having your thoughts on just just what has developed in the first couple of days. Thank you. Anthony, let me bring you in there in the uh, comparative piece of the Chatham House studio. Just to dig into this technical question of what we've seen. Have you seen anything surprising in these first few days? I think we started to see more countries willing to say that they'll fund loss and damage. So we saw in COP26, it was subnational governments, basically, that were putting forward pledges. And now we're seeing Austria, Scotland's increased its pledge. There's seen some hints that China may contribute. I'm, I'm not quite sure how, but it's become a much more of a constructive discussion about countries saying, well, actually, maybe we will make a contribution. It's obviously far off the trillions that is, is talked about, but it's the political momentum that is being created. And are they recognising it as an obligation, if you like? This is something when John Kerry was talking to us here in Chatham House, he said, look, uh, it might be 
might be some kind of conversations uh, about payments to, to help countries that are suffering from climate change, but not recognizing some kind of obligation to compensate. Yeah, no, I think we're, we're still a, a long way off that. But it's baby steps. And it has been a, a number of years to get to this point. And I do think in terms of the statements that you saw in the presidents and the prime ministers over the first two days of COP, loss and damage and climate impacts were really front and centre. There were some very emotional statements about the, the consequences that countries are already seeing. So that, along with adaptation and the desire for there to be a doubling of adaptation finance in 2025, I think will be yeah, a couple of the key issues from a, a large number of the delegates there. Just take us into the momentum of this a bit, because I'm uh, I offend, I'm sure, some of the Scottish delegation in this, but, you know, they're not an independent country yet. They're not responsible for all of their own spending and have a keen eye on the effect of what they say on the Westminster government and the debate about independence and so on. But do you detect that there really has been a change in wider national governments towards at least looking at some kind of payments? Yes. I mean, I, I think that there was recognition that within COP26, so last year, insufficient progress was being made. And you saw the Egyptians saying, actually, this is important for us. And so I think over the last year, there has been behind the scenes discussions that have significantly moved forward the debate. Why do you say significantly? It has moved forward the debate. It's a long way to go. But absolute national governments are looking at it slightly differently. Where is the UK on this? And Rishi Sunak uh, has flown out to COP, uh, having first said he wouldn't, and then the pressure grew, and he did indeed respond to that, though, as he pointed out, he has got an awful lot to think about back home as well. Where is the UK on all this? And he's come back again. Mm. So he, yeah. he, he was yeah. there for, yeah. I don't know, 24, 36 hours. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, I, I think it's important he went. It would have been a, a dreadful signal if he hadn't gone, uh, in particular, as we were handing over the presidency. I think it was a declaration of previous statements in terms of, of what he was saying, in terms of this is how much we've given. He wasn't saying we're going to give more money and they haven't pledged that loss and damage will be part of that funding. So it's a reiteration of existing or those pledges that were made around COP26. Peter, I wonder if you can give us just your perspective on the US's place in this, but also how it's seeing its participation in some of these huge international movements because in many ways even though Joe Biden said at one point America is back yeah. he also took the United States very abruptly out of Afghanistan and there are elements in the Democrat party really quite equivocal about aid for Ukraine and wh where do you think the US is positioning itself and its willingness to to help well if we're talking about on this particular issue at COP27 I mean I think Kerry has tried to signal that the US is it's open to discussing the idea, but it's not prepared to provide funds. And I think this is because it's just too heavy a lift right now inside the United States. And it's not something that Joe Biden could do just using executive action. There's a lot of things that Biden will do using executive action, but this involves purse strings. And so I think that's that's a real complication. And, and frankly, this whole COP27 has just been completely below the fold in the United States because of the election, in the run-up to the election. And I mean, this is just the reality. That's it's, it's complete coverage. It's also true of Ukraine. The thing that caught my attention was Kerry's effort to reach out to his Chinese counterpart. Really good point. And what I look for, well, 
maybe it's a hope, is that in Bali, that if Biden and Xi Jinping do meet, I don't think it's been agreed yet. And if it is agreed, they're not going to have a clear agenda. And so I hope that climate is really that they they identify that as a place where they can begin to dial down some of the tensions. It's not going to happen over trade. Taiwan is very, very complicated, but this is an area where, you know, I think it's it's in it's obviously in both sides' interest to kind of dial down the the rhetoric. And I think given the outcome, the likely the direction of travel and politically in the United States right now. And Xi Jinping's, he's consolidated his hold on power and so forth. I, I would like to think that, that there's space for them to begin to kind of explore some cooperation. And, and, and this is a, an obvious area for both of them. And it's something that matters for Xi Jinping domestically, and it matters for Biden domestically. Not if, even if you know, Trump is against it, okay, yeah, that's fine. But it matters to Biden's own political base, for sure, and to many independent voters in the United States. Thank you very much for that. I love that old phrase, below the fold, back right from when <laughs> newspapers were actually physical, physical things. Yes. There could be something so low, low down, you wouldn't, you wouldn't bother with right. it. Anthony, uh, this interesting point of the US and China in this, has China changed its, its position? I'm not sure it's changed its position. I mean, I think we've seen statements today suggesting that, from the Chinese negotiations, suggesting that the ball is in the US court on this issue when it was China that had originally, post-Taiwan, had basically broken off the ongoing discussions on climate change, which was one of the surprises in COP26. People weren't expecting there to be the announcement of a joint programme. So it did change the mood music in Glasgow. And we'll have to see whether or not that can happen in COP27. I do think that it's really important to recognise the extent to which climate impacts are having a, a direct consequence in China and the US. I mean, obviously in, in China, we saw huge heat waves this summer. We saw large rivers no longer able to be used as transportation routes. So it is having an impact. It is a important domestic issue in China. So they know that there needs to be cooperation. Really interesting. Peter, what do you make of what John Kerry has done with his role, a former Secretary of State, but now this role created by the US of Special Envoy for Climate Change? I asked him whether it was a help to come from the US in in these things, in that people will listen to you, or a, a hindrance in that the US was and remains one of the world's biggest polluters. And he has said something like, uh, I, I'm old enough not to feel shy in... in uh, <laughs> making requests to people, I paraphrase, I yeah. hasten to say. But what, what do you make of what he's he's done with this role? I, I think he's helped move. It's like moving the QE2. I mean, you know, he's helped move, help the United States shift its position. And so I think he's made a, a useful and valuable contribution there. I, I think the hope was is that his portfolio would be, in a sense, broader or that he would have more running room in the administration. And I, I think part of the problem is part of the problem is that the domestic issues ended up absorbing so much of Biden's attention for very obvious reasons when he came in. And secondly, I think the opportunity to move on an international issue like this 
you know, it was, it, I mean, there were other international issues. And I think Ukraine, you know, the war there has just absorbed a tremendous amount of bandwidth in the United States. It became, you know, for all kinds of reasons. But I, I think for the Biden administration, this just got pushed to the top. And there's just only so much space or room for moving on issues. And, I, and so I think traditional security issues end up dominating. And the reason they end up dominating is partly for international reasons, geopolitical reasons, but also domestically, because they become areas of intense political vulnerability if they're not addressed. You put it really well. Thank you very much for that. Anthony, let me go finally to the question of of bankers and finance. We helped organise a big get-together of bankers and financiers and business people at Lancaster House last week, which followed one that King Charles had brought together at Buckingham Palace. Chatham House had been very proud to say instrumental in putting this programme at Lancaster House together. And I was very struck by the commitment of many bankers and financiers particularly, they're saying there is a lot of money. We just need a bit of help from government to tilt the playing field in the favour of green finance and so on. You've been watching this for years and years. What's your sense of the momentum there? I think it's very clear we've seen significant increases. Um, you can look at the, the degree to which renewable energy, electric vehicles, smart grids, etc., are being rolled out. And probably under many circumstances, you'd say that that is exceptional. The problem is the speed that we need to do things in order to meet the challenge. So what is being talked about is the need for sort of a sevenfold increase in the amount of funding that's going to green technologies in the next handful of years. The speed at which we need to deploy goes significantly faster than the market will normally deliver. And I think that's the challenge. And that's the role of government, isn't it? It is to help speed up from a a project perspective, getting the the shovels in, getting the projects up. So it's planning issues, it's it's infrastructure connections, etc. But then it's also giving the investors the confidence that if they move faster than they may normally feel comfortable with, there is a a certain amount of, of confidence that the government will create the longevity of the policies that they are basically supporting by by their investments. We can't go into the detail of all of this, but things like helping create a premium for, for greenhouses and so on, make them more attractive to buy some, some advantages for green finance and so on. We're not going to dive, you may be relieved to know, into all this technical detail in this podcast, but it is there in all our work and the team has published a terrific amount of this recently. On that note, we are going to have to wrap up. There's much more of COP to come in the coming days. There's definitely much more of the American news to come. There's much more news from many other places. And that's the show. So a big thank you to my guests. That's Leslie in Georgia, Anna in Egypt, and Peter and Anthony here in London. You can follow all of them and us on Twitter. That is, while Twitter still has a following. And you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify or major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media channels. So do like, follow and subscribe. Please do leave us a review. Not the last time I'm going to ask you. And for all our work, or to become a member and ask a question, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the continuing work of our US and America's programme and our Environment and Society programme.
Next week, we'll be bringing you all our analysis and thoughts on many questions that might well be the environment again. It might well be Iran and the wider Middle East. There is an awful lot happening, as we know, at Chatham House. But we are in the UK with a stable government for a week, feeling as if we're in the still point of a turning world. See you next week. 